0: Good morning, church. Romans 9 is where we are at. So you can open your Bibles there. Well, we have uh, at least two middle school teachers uh, in our midst this morning. And uh, for a long period of time, I was a, I was a middle school pastor. And I love that season of my life uh, because middle schoolers are this fascinating age, age group where, in the same conversation, this little miniature adult shows up and is asking phenomenal questions and dialoguing and using their brain and heart in ways that really astound you, and then seconds later, a little child shows up, and they, they are this brackish water between adult and child, and it ping-pongs back and forth, and it's never-ending, and I love the challenge and joy of that. Here's a question I would get from my junior high students all the time. I taught, um, I was a pastor at Los Gatos Christian Church and the Bible teacher at Los Gatos Christian School and Valley Christian School, they would all say, go ask your youth pastors this question. Can God create a rock that he can't lift? Can God create a rock that he can't lift? So I'd have all these junior hires loving, coming up and playing, stump the youth pastor, hey, answer me this. And they would come up and they'd fire off their little question. I loved it. It was without fail. They, these, these Bible teachers would say, go stump your youth pastor. And, uh, and, and what's supposed to happen with that question is what? Is that maybe God's omnipotence, his, his ability to do anything, his all-powerfulness is somehow under threat. Let me take your minds back two weeks ago to this little pot saying to the one making it, And sort of talking back to it. Does a pot have a right to talk back to the potter? The scriptures say clearly no. This question, by the way, fundamentally falls into that sort of category. It's us as creator going, oh yeah, I've stumped you. Can you create a rock that you can't lift? Now, here's what's kind of interesting about that. Um, God is not bound by his creation. He's the creator of his creation and so, um, so the one who holds, you know, kings and kingdoms in the palm of his hands, the whole universe in the palm of his hands, he isn't bound by his creation. In some ways, it's a nonsensical question, uh, you know, like asking, can you make a round square or something like that, right? Um, uh, it could be just as valid to say, can God make a rock so purple that he can't lift it? Like, that is a nonsensical thing. And it's like, well, that doesn't really have any bearing on it. At the same time, part of what we call the laws of gravity or the laws of our physical uh, world is that things tend to behave in the same way. And so God has put some things in place. And you could say it this way, that God has already created rocks that he can't lift. Think about this for a minute. God, the sun, comes to earth. And there are rocks that exist. Let me point you to one, Ayers Rock in Australia. Um, Ayers Rock is a rock that God the Son could not lift, but God the Father made. Think about that for a while. You can just chew on that while you chew on your food at lunchtime, okay? Um, so God has already done that. He's already cre- created a rock that he can't lift. Um, how big is Ayers Rock? Look at that. The, the pyramids are dwarfed by it. The Eiffel Tower is dwarfed by it. Even Big Ben is dwarfed by it. And, and that's a big, big deal. I want to start off with a little parable this morning. I want you to imagine for a moment that you traveled to Australia and you signed up for a walkabout tour. A walkabout is Australian for hiking. It's a super cool way to say hiking. So you're on a walkabout tour and it just so happens that you're walking with a team of geologists and the person leading the walkabout tour says, hey, stop everyone for a minute. We're gonna play a little game called Name That Rock. Now, your geological friends are suddenly giddy because here's the thing. These people have never won homecoming. They've never won a pop singing contest. They never won a single thing at sports. They're geologists. They look at rocks and name rocks and study rocks. And so they're giddy with excitement thinking we can win this. Like this is our area of specialty. When the leader of your walkabout says, go, here's what you witness. You witness your entire entire walkabout crew running around, looking at rocks, naming rocks, gathering, collecting. And then you see a few muttering and you realize they're practicing the Latin pronunciation of these rocks to make sure they have it just spot on. And while you're sitting there witnessing all of this, you point to the horizon and you say, well, there's, there's that rock there. That's Ayers Rock. And your geologist mates, that's what you've grown to call them because you've been in Australia for a couple of days now, your geologist friends there on the walkabout scoff at you. You don't really care. You don't even care to win this game. You don't even care to be playing this game. So you shrug your shoulders, and after a period of time, the leader of this walkabout stops everything and says, you are the winner. The one that just named Ayers Rock." Is the winner. And by the way, the prize is a two week, all expense paid vacation to the Great Barrier Reef. I want you to just feel what your geologist mates would feel in that moment. I want you to feel what you would feel in that moment. Yeah. Now, ludicrous, unfair. Listen to Jesus condemning religious legalism when he says this. He says that the experts strain out gnats and they swallow what? Camels. They strain out gnats and they swallow camels. Let me say this bluntly at the front of this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is deeply offensive to religious people. It is deeply troubling to the self-righteous. Read with me Paul's summary of the current spiritual landscape of Israel. This is Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles... I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Pause for a minute. Those who knew the most stumbled over the obvious. And Gentiles, who are those with only a foggy idea about what the righteous requirements were, were counted as righteous. Those who wanted it the most missed out. And those who had no desire for righteous righteousness, in fact, you could read into Romans 1 that they actually had the opposite. Not only did they not desire righteousness, they were running the opposite direction. They are the ones who received it. And those who tried the hardest lost. And those who were coasting in areas of morality probably knew there should they should tighten up on some things. They were the ones who ended up winning. The NIV puts this really succinctly when it says this. Why didn't the Jews get in? It's this. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. Now, I want to take the theology of Romans 9 and 10 here. We're going to We're going to look at this and dissect it and kind of pull it apart and see what we can chew on from this. But I want to overlay it with some really familiar teachings of Jesus Christ. If you've been in church for any length of time, in fact, I had someone last week, I love this question. Hey, Dave, I feel a renewed commitment to pursue God. And I know a part of that is reading his word. Could you direct me of where I should start reading the scripture? Can I just tell you Pastors weep for joy. Christian friends weep for joy when people come and ask this. So I directed them to a few places, but one of my common answers to that is this. Keep reading the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because what you'll do is you'll, you'll keep close to Jesus. You'll see what kind of life Jesus lived. And if you read the Gospels, what you see in Jesus are some common teachings, and it teaches this very point. Listen to some of these. The last will be first. Remember Jesus saying that? Those who are trying the hardest, those who appear to be way out in front, unattainable to, every, to anyone, are actually in last place, and those who are in last place will be first. How about this? He says, unless you come as a child, you won't be saved. If you come as a skilled geologist, you won't win. Here's another one. Jesus says, uh, invite people to the banquet. And go into the highways and the byways. Go into the outskirts. Why does, he send, why does he send them to the highways and byways? Because those who were closest, those who should have been the first to receive the invitation to the banquet, to the gospel, rejected it. I've got things to do. I just bought a new ski boat. Sorry, I regretfully decline. Uh, maybe next time, I'm sure you'll have other banquets. I'm busy doing things. I've got my own life going on. So he sends them to the byways and the highways. How about two people offering alms at the temple? One sees how great he is. The other sees how utterly needy he is. The one who's justified before God? Last place. One more. The woman caught in adultery. The woman caught in adultery, the story ends with religious leaders, Jewish people with rocks in their hand, ready to kill. And yet right in their midst is the rock of ages that they reject. And the one who had no hope of a good reputation, having been caught in the midst of the act of adultery, gets restored. Over and over and over again, what you see is this. Those who seem closest, those, those who appear to be the first that would jump on this are the very ones that would reject it. Here's what I want you to see from this passage: Jesus of Nazareth offers grace, and Jesus of Nazareth is both a stumbling stone and a firm foundation—one in the same person. Two different outcomes. Let me look first at the ways that people trip out on Jesus. He's a stumbling stone. Paul is diligently showing that uh, that those who are working so hard at their religion, it's futile. Jews were the experts. They were the ones with the blueprint, blueprints on righteousness, and yet most of them rejected Jesus, the cornerstone, the very foundation they should have been building on. Jesus is still a rock of offense, and people trip up on Jesus in various ways. Listen to 1 Corinthians one twenty-two: For Jews demand a sign, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews, and his foolishness or folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, why is Christ such a stumbling block? I'm going to have you answer that in community groups. By the way, community groups are up and rolling this fall. They're going amazing. If you aren't in one, it's not too late to, to join in on one. On the back page of your bulletin and on our website at all times, Uh, lives all the details for that. But people trip up on Jesus in a variety of ways. Why is he a stumbling block? Look Look at chapter 10, verse 4. It says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Say that again. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. What does this mean? If you're interested in writing this down, write down the word telos, T-E-L-O-S. That is the word for end used in this sentence. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. So what is telos? Well, it has two sort of meanings. One is that it's the finish line. One is that it's the completion of. Christ is a stumbling block. Because Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Remember what he says in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but what? To fulfill them. Remember that? So what that means is this. All of the law points to Jesus, and all of the law is fulfilled in Jesus. So Jesus doesn't wipe away the law, but the requirements of the law. That's really, really critical. I was reading a couple of weeks ago this passage, studying this passage, wondering what the end of the law of righteousness meant. And I told you, a giant part of scholarship is you just look, and then you look some more, and then you do a third thing, and you look at it some more. So I was looking at this word saying, God, what does this mean that you're the end of the law of righteousness? And as I'm sitting here staring at that, uh, I happened to read the the, the proverb of the day, Proverbs 28, and there's three instances in Proverb 28 that just celebrate the law. The law doesn't go away. The law doesn't become bad once Jesus shows up, but the requirements of the law are fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, when I hear the law and I feel the crushing weight of, I can't It doesn't feel bad to me. I say, you know what? The requirement has been fulfilled. All right. What does it mean that Christ is the finish line? Here's what, he's, here's what it means that Christ is the finish line, the end of the law. Belief in him as our righteousness, catch this, ends our striving to earn God's grace. It ends our striving to pay God back for the ways that we have offended him. What are people in prison doing? They're paying their debt to who? Society. But you could say even more specifically to that mom who lost their child in that drunk driving accident. And you could say more specifically to God. Because God is the one you offend with all sin. Is 10 years in prison? Is that enough? Should it be 8 years? Should it be 12 years? How do we pay God back for the wrongdoing? Here's the trippy part of everyone who's incarcerated today. They are continuing to heap up wrongdoing, even while in prison. Those of you who've never been incarcerated and feel like you stand above that, you are heaping up wrongdoing in your freedom (laughs) by all the things that you're doing that you shouldn't be doing and all the things that you should be doing, but you just aren't. So am I. This is what the law demands of us. This is why people uh, tend to do all kinds of crazy things with the law. Christ is the finish line, which means belief in him is our righteousness, ends our striving to earn God's grace or pay him back. Here's what the cross does. It stamps paid in full across our lives. It's been paid. We are the victors over sin and death. The striving is over. We have a couple families in this room who are on the swim team or on our swim team and, um, and kids swimming is a fantastic sight. Uh, the littlest kids, it's sort of a cross between you're like a parent cheering on and videotaping and you're also a lifeguard because they could go under at any moment and not make it back up. And, um, and if they can keep their goggles on and actually swim the event that they're supposed to be swimming, and remember the stroke that they are swimming between me being the timer and that gun going off, then that's a huge victory. And, um, and what happens sometimes is, um, is the starter will say, swimmers, take your mark, and then he'll fire off the gun, and everyone jumps in, but usually with the kids it looks like this. Um, so everyone's in, and off they go. They're swimming, they're doing every stroke because they forget which one it is. And then the buzzer goes beep, 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 Signifying a false start. Telling you to stop swimming. Little kids can barely remember to put their goggles down. They don't know what all the beeps mean. And then what happens to the crowd? Everyone's going, stop swimming! And they're like, man. People are excited today, and so they swim even harder. And it breaks your heart because I'm a timer at these meets, and you're watching all of this effort being exerted for nothing. There will be no winners here. None of this counts. Eventually, it's always awesome because some of the older kids will jump in and physically grab the kid. You know, they've only made it like 20 feet so far. But they'll grab the kid and stop them, and they, you know, they, kind, of, they kind of like, oh, okay. Here's what Paul's doing with, with, with big parts of Romans. He's calling out to his countrymen, you've false started, we've all false started. Stop your swimming. This isn't the race you should be striving after. And it's a picture of an older kid jumping in to stop the little kid, and the little kid shoving him away, saying, no, 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 I've got to win, and keep on going. What's sad is the furthest one out who's exerted the most amount of energy, guess what they'd make them do? they make them get out of the pool, walk back to the starter gate, and then run the real race. They're exhausted. The Jews, even as Paul was grabbing them, pleading with them, stop this madness, shoving him away, and keeping on with their striving. Christ is the end of the law of righteousness. He is the finish line. Chapter 10. What we see with chapter 10 is the start of this very similar way that he started chapter 9. Remember unceasing anguish that he had for his kinsmen, those who were his blood brothers, the, the Jews? Look at chapter 10, verse 1. It's Paul bearing his heart to everyone who believes. Let me draw your attention in verse 2 to those who have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge. There's all kinds of zeal without knowledge going on in our day. I was just on vacation. I was down in San Diego with my family. And it took us, no joke, probably 12 minutes. And I timed these things because I'm an efficient person. When things are inefficient, I seem like a really laid-back guy. But sometimes I'm just not. And we were sitting at this intersection, and it was a horrendous intersection. You couldn't get through it because of the way the lights worked, and no one said, no one followed the law of keep clear. They all tried to weasel in. And so we sat there, light after light, and I just, I'm just getting really frustrated. And my dearest bride, God knew what kind of wife that I needed. She turned to me and she said this. Now, first of all, mind you, we're off, we've been in the water all day, we're all exhausted. We're just taking a car ride to go kind of explore some of the cliffs around San Diego. We have nowhere to go. Zero appointments. No reason to rush whatsoever. The kids are happy in the back of the van. My wife turns to me and she says this, Dave, you're not a city regional planner. And here's what she said, she said, Dave, This isn't your fight. And I turn to her and go, you mean I don't have to have a meeting on Monday to correct this? Nope. Are you sure? Because I think I do. I think I should tell someone about this. And then she says this. Another light cycle, by the way. I'm breathing. I'm finding my happy place. It's not here in traffic. So I'm working back up a little bit. And she goes, Dave, here's the other thing. Like, you'll never be at this intersection again, ever. And so I, I needed that. That's zeal without knowledge. I don't have the first clue about how to, how to dissipate traffic. I really don't. That's zeal. Like, all this driven passion, all this opinion, without any clue what I'm talking about. Does this sound like our culture at all, people? Is zeal without knowledge rampant in our culture? Here's two fallacies that are exposed uh, by this zeal without knowledge. The first goes like this. You are either a person of faith or you are a person of science. And you must choose. Those represent two worldviews and you're either a person of faith or you're a person of science. A second fallacy says this. It doesn't really matter what you believe. As long as you believe it with all your heart, as long as you are sincere, do these ring a bell to you? I see and hear these all the time. Let's take them one at a time. First, faith or science. Uh, What does the word science mean? Means knowledge, right? So conscience is with knowledge. You're doing something with, with full knowledge. So science is simply a matter of knowledge. What is faith? Well, faith represents we all have knowledge, but we don't have unlimited knowledge. And so what happens is we get blocks of truth, blocks of knowledge, and in between those blocks are these gaps, and they're like this, and faith represents what happens between those gaps. We know this much, we don't know other stuff, so we have to have faith and kind of link those together the truth is, every single person that you ever meet is both a person of knowledge and faith. You aren't choosing between that. I would say the two big delineators are, is there a God or is there not a God? Is all of our hope and all of our knowledge based on our five senses, what the scientific method can, can prove, and what we can deduce from historical, archaeological-type evidence, or is there more? But it's not faith or science. Here's the second one. It doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you are sincere. But isn't it quite possible? In fact, I would assert that it's absolutely true. There are many sincere people going in the wrong direction. Many sincere people, utterly convinced, that are going in exactly the wrong direction. This is a rip current. And I want you to imagine someone caught in a rip current. One time, Travis and I were caught in a rip current in Mexico. And we sort of did it on purpose. We were out there floating on surfboards and boogie boards. And we were halfway to like Catalina Island at that point. We were ripping out there. And I told Travis, I said, hey, Travis, don't panic. I'm right here with you. But I want you to see something. You see that we're in a rip current right now. And it was a really cool, teachable moment. It, it taught me a lot. I don't know if it taught Travis. Travis like, I forget the whole thing. But, but I mean, it was a, you could see people getting smaller on the beach, our friends and family. And I said, now, at some point, like now that we're doing this, let, let's paddle parallel to the beach and let's get out of this because this is just the water coming back out. And you could have someone, in fact, regularly at youth beach trips, have to watch for people who are caught in rip currents and what's the most natural thing to do if you're caught in a rip current? You've got to get back to shore. So here you are. You're the little kid swimming again, <laughs> right? You're swimming against God's laws of nature, There are people swimming against God's law of spirituality, and they're just working their tail off to get back. Now, you could have a friend come near you and say to you, why are you swimming in that direction? Please come with me parallel to the beach. You're caught in what's called a rip current. You need to go this way or this way, but not back to shore. And you could scream at them. You could stand on a soapbox and yell at them with a book in your hand. Uh, You could come alongside them and befriend them. You could model it and swim sideways, look, I'm no longer going out. You can do all kinds of things. But if they're utterly convinced, and you say, why do you continue to to just, you know, not even swim anymore, you're just going out, and they might say this, well, I know that the oceans connect, so I am going to just drift out to sea, and eventually I'll come all the way back around the earth, and I'll get to shore. You see the danger of this There's some truth to that, right? There's some truth to that. I mean, if you could somehow survive, I suppose, you would end up somewhere. You'd end up on shore somewhere. But it's misdirected. Now, it does not matter how sincere this person is with this this knowledge. They're heading in the wrong direction. This is zeal without knowledge. Here's what Romans is about, this part of Romans. It's the word rejection. And it's the Jews that have rejected the cornerstone. And Paul is pleading, don't trip on Jesus, build on Jesus. You are striving against God's tide and losing. Trust me, I know. In your notes this morning is Galatians 1, 11 to 24. I'm not going to take the time to read it, but go and read. That's Paul's testimony. Here's what Paul was building his life on. He was fanatical. He was zealous. But here's the thing. He was zealous for the traditions of his forefathers. He wasn't really zealous for the things of God. He thought he was zealous for the things of God. In fact, it says he was advancing amongst everyone else in Judaism, right? But he was heading in exactly the opposite direction. And then God rescued him. And when God rescued him, he put him on the firm foundation of Christ And now this very faith that Paul used to persecute, he now preaches. And you know who gets the glory? God gets the glory. God gets the glory because the one who is working against God is now done a 180 and is actually working for God and with God. Paul's been down that road. He says, man, Judaism is worse than a dead end running after religion and trying to keep perfect obedience. Trust me, I was trying that with all my might. It's not just a dead end where you just get to turn around. It's worse than that because there's a monster at the end of that cul-de-sac ready to eat your soul. Paul was killing people who were proclaiming the cornerstone, Jesus Christ. Chasing people. In your community group this week, I want to challenge you to do something. Paul's testimony is exceedingly powerful. Your story is really powerful. I just, said, I just had a conversation this morning with someone before church started. And her comment was, man, I was, I was really broken and God needed to humble me and, and rebuild me. And I said, man, that's, that's all of our story. That is every Christian's story. So if you don't have the ability to tell your story to another person, about how you used to be building your life on something, but God rescued you and now you build your life on the firm foundation of Christ, if you can't communicate that in 30 seconds without using religious words, without being super creepy and uber spiritual that makes people go, very good, thank you for telling me your story, (laughs) um, then, then I challenge you. In fact, I actually plead with you. I think it's biblical to be able to do this. We're to be ready to give a defense of why we believe. Why would you believe that nonsense? You know what? Thank you for asking me that. Thank you for taking me interested. Can I tell you in 30 seconds or 45 seconds? As a community group this week, I want you to actually work on this together. And if, if you're using big preachy words, call each other on that and say, stop. That what does that even mean? I've been sanctified in the blood. Whoa. What does that mean? So you're going to you're going to work on that uh together. I think it's really really powerful to give glory to God. Now, many people trip out on Jesus, but not all is lost. There's still time. Uh the ever hopeful power of the gospel is that it is the salvation to all who believe, the Jew first and then the Gentile. That's from Romans 1:16. Isn't it true that people change all the time? They've built their life on something. They've discovered this isn't what I thought I was building. I'm not happy here. I don't like the choices I've made that have led me here. I don't know that it's truthful even. I thought it was, but it's, 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 it's the wrong thing. Maybe it was pleasure. Maybe it was achievement. Maybe it was perfect obedience. Maybe it was wealth and the accumulation of stuff. I pray to God for your children and my children that they learn at an early, early age in life that pursuing that stuff leads to a dead end. I'll tell you the big difference between youth ministry and adult ministry. Youth ministry, it's hopeful. They haven't made a ton of the mistakes that are coming. Adult ministry can be really hard and discouraging. You hear just the tragedy of all of our ruined lives. But here's the beautiful thing. It doesn't matter that you didn't make the choice as a kid to follow Christ. You can make a choice today. You can shift it. It's to all who believe. Look at, look at verse 90, uh, 933. This rock of offense, this stumbling stone for many, is also the firm foundation. It says, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Do you see it's Jesus one and the same? Jesus is the stone of offense. He's the rock that people trip over. And he's the firm foundation to everyone who believes. Christ is the rock of ages. I have a goal for you and your friends and your family. And it's not that they come to church, it's not that they become members, it's not that they invite Jesus into their heart, get baptized, serve at Love, Inc., or anything else. I have a far more loftier goal and a far more simple goal. I long that every person in this room and every person that you meet this week do one simple thing. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I long for. I think after you believe Jesus. I think all kinds of other stuff comes into play, but I don't care about any of that stuff. Here's why I don't care about it. Jesus didn't care about it. Listen carefully to Matthew seven twenty one. You can turn there if you want, or just listen carefully. If it helps to close your eyes, close your eyes. Here's what he says, Jesus talking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works all in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because I have the benefit of seeing this in front of me, I'll I'll review your mind to the key part of this. Those who do the will of God in heaven... Are the ones who get in on the kingdom. What's the will of God? Listen to this in John 6. People ask Jesus this very question What must we do to be doing the works of God? What should we do to do the works of God? Here's Jesus' answer This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. That's it. You want to know God's will? that's it. You want to do God's work? That's it. You, you trust in Jesus. You trust in the name of Jesus and, and that's it. The alternative is to do what the wisdom of the human heart says is important. It's to do the many mighty works that you might be able to dream up. It could take a religious tone, like like the ones Jesus was addressing, prophesying in the name of Jesus and building orphanages in the name of Jesus and holding giant crusades in the name of Jesus. Proverbs 28 says this, Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Church, what about you? You have heaven or hell to lose or gain with this question doing the will of God in heaven or trusting your own mind to build a good life this next part of Matthew 7 is going to sound really familiar to you it's interesting to hear the preceding part but here's what Jesus goes on to tell in Matthew 7 to the lord lord people he says everyone fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. You know, there are still Jew-like people who are seeking signs from heaven. And they overlooked Jesus because it couldn't possibly be that easy. It can't be that easy. You just receive it? Give me a break. There are still Greek like wisdom seekers out there that laugh off Jesus as folklore to be believed in by peons. The invitation and challenge regarding Jesus remains build on him, and you're accomplishing God's work. Reject him, and you're building in vain. That's the plain teaching of Jesus. Two options. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. September 27th was a Wednesday. I wrote it down in my journal because it was powerful. I came in to work early in the morning, and one of the things pastors have a hard time doing sometimes is separating just meeting with God and just being present and hearing from the Father and sermon prep. Because there's always this looming thing called Sunday, and I knew I was going on vacation, so I was working on this very message. I had a general sense from the study and just reading the scriptures and all of that, this idea of Christ being the rock and all of that. And here's what I prayed that morning. I prayed, rock of ages, I need you every hour, teach me to build on you. That's what I prayed. And on this particular morning, I was very freed from the tyranny of the urgent, from the tyranny of trying to put a sermon together. I just was very present with the Lord and just reading from my reading plan. You know what was in my reading plan that morning? sitting right through these walls before the sun came up. I read from Isaiah 26.3, right after breathing out those words of this prayer, here's what I read. You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you, because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever, for the Lord God is an everlasting rock. I put my Bible down. <laughs> I just said, God, you have my attention. You build on Jesus, here's what you get. You get zeal with knowledge. Here's all I was doing. I was humbly submitting myself before the Lord, knowing I'm a needy person. I just wanted to hear from my father. And he tells me he's an everlasting rock. You better believe my study that day and the days ahead were powerful for me. Jot these things down. What we can never do is live the life we've always dreamed of. We know what, we, what ought to be done and what not. It's called our conscience. And from chapter 1, we see that how life should be, that we have a giant problem, and that is that we can't live that way. That's what we can never do. Another thing we can never do is unshatter what has been ruined. Some of you could look at your phone screen to just give evidence of this. You count that as precious. You know that's a multi-hundred-dollar tool in your hand. That's your link to all of your Facetagram people, right? <laughs> Kidding. My daughter hates that. Um, and yet there it is, shattered in your hand. You can't unshatter glass. It's ruined. We can never unshatter things. Thirdly, we can never improve on God's plan. We're called on God to live by faith, not by zeal, not by might, not by more education. That's what we can never do. Listen to what God has already done. Here it is. He's supplied the cornerstone. Jesus did live the life that we were never able to live, and he died the death that we all deserve because of our sin. He also made righteousness attainable to one and all. That's what redemption is. It's taking the broken pieces of our life, melting it down, and not just recycling us, but redeeming us, remaking us, making us reborn. And what's powerful about this church is this, that the elite and the illiterate and everything in between all find a seat at God's family table. We all come the same way as little children by faith. I'm going to have the band lead us in a song right now called Cornerstone, and its words, these words capture the meaning of this. And as we do, uh, we're going to take up our offering as well.